Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today. In 1977, she auditioned to be an understudy on the soap opera One Life to Live. That audition turned into two daytime Emmys. Welcome, Judith Light. A-OK. A-OK. Hey, everyone. My guest today is two-time Tony Award winner, two-time Drama Desk Award winner, and two-time Emmy Award winner, Judith Light. Judith first came into the hearts of most TV viewers when she portrayed Karen Wolick on One Life to Live. And then she made the rare leap from daytime to primetime and became famous for her role on Who's the Boss? But she always returned to the theater. Some of her standout plays include roles in A Doll's House, Wit, Lombardi, for which she was nominated for a Tony, Other Desert Cities, for which she won, Assembled Parties, for which she also won, Therese Rican, and most recently, her one-woman show, All the Ways to Say I Love You, written by playwright Neil LeBute. On TV, she has also starred on Dallas, Ugly Betty, Law and Order SVU, and of course, the groundbreaking award-winning series, Transparent. Along with her numerous, too many to mention, made-for-TV movies, on film, Judith has starred in Iron Abbey, Save Me, Last Weekend, and Digging for Fire, among many others. She is a dedicated activist involved with many human rights organizations, but she has been a passionate spokesperson for the LGBTQ community for decades and is an honorary board member of the Point Foundation, a national LGBTQ scholarship fund. It is my unbelievable pleasure to welcome Judith Light to the podcast. Welcome. Hello. Thank you, my dear, wonderful friend. This beloved friend of mine has an amazing story. And from what I understand, the story really began in a very young Judith Light's household in Trenton, New Jersey. 
where from a really early age, you were focused on being a performer. Yeah. Was the genesis of the idea your parents' idea? Was it Sid and Sue Light's idea? Or was they it would you? love that you said uh, their names. Well, that would make them so happy. Done. Sid and Sue Light. Yeah. Both of my parents love the performing arts and love just the arts. And what was really interesting was my mother helped me memorize Twas the Night Before Christmas. And I did it for my father. And it was sort of overwhelming for him. And he started weeping. And I remember that absolute moment. And and in therapy, they call that a palimpsest moment, which is that moment where something locks in very sharply. That's a, a, a vague definition of it. But it's one of those things that you goes into your psyche and your system in a very powerful way. So I th- had the thought, and I remember having the thought, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And then began... Make my father weep. Well, it wasn't just make my father weep. It was something happens when you connect with another human being. Mm, So deeply. And so deeply. And you have children and you know what that means. On that level, to connect with your supporter, your solace, your champion, uh, and both of my parents in that way. And it was really uh, a a very defining moment. Were you an only child? Yeah, as an only child. And I think my parents wanted other children, but they couldn't have them. That's a whole other longer story. So I think they put everything into me. And when they knew that this was something that I wanted to do, they were on board fully. And that meant, you know, all the stuff that parents do to support their children. It's the ballet lessons and the tap dancing lessons and the, you know, the modern jazz and the piano and the, I mean, to the cello and, uh, you know, uh, sort of on and on and on. And they never stopped supporting me. I mean, they would drive me, my father would drive me to rehearsals for community theater and wait for me in the car in the winter while I would rehearse. Were you super close to them? You know, close is, it's an interesting word. I wouldn't, I wouldn't use that word to describe my relationship with them. My father was working all the time. He got up at two or three in the morning. He was in the institutional food business, and he would have to meet the trucks when they came to bring the, the fruits and vegetables. I think that's partly how I got involved uh, years ago in the uh, the hunger issue at the very, like in 1977 when the Hunger Project started. That's right. how I, it was I think familiar I, that to you. lived in me in some way. So he was getting up at two or three in the morning, and I would hear him. And, you know, people say, oh, what's it like to get, you know, have to get up to be at the set at, you know, four o'clock in the morning. And I think my father did it every morning. Yeah. Then he came home at six o'clock. We would have dinner and he would go to bed. So we didn't have a lot of time together, but our time together was very precious. And he was about making me be as substantive as I could be Mm. as a human being. And that was very important to him. And my mother was always off doing something, but she was also always there for me as a presence. Being an only child is a whole other thing, too, I imagine. Were you a social kid? Well, I was in the arts. Right. And I was performing. And that was your family. And that was my family. And so, yes, I mean, I was incredibly social, but also I was also very alone. Mm. I was different than everybody else. So in my own way, I was very 
quote, in quotes, queer. Mm -hmm. And so people didn't really know what to make of me. That's why I think I, I so understood at the very beginning of being in the arts, I found a family in the arts in a way that I had not found before. Were you confident? It's paradoxical. I think I knew I had something. I got a lot of validation from outside of just my parents right. saying that they thought I was good. It was like, you know, it's nice little Judy plays the piano, little Judy tap dances for the people. But when people outside started yeah. to say things to me and to them about what my talent was, that gave me a lot of confidence. I had, I mean, my kindergarten teacher, I remember Mrs. Bergen, she was very supportive of my doing this. It's all about uh, the teachers I and the know. mentors early on totally, to make totally. us feel like we have something to well, offer. Yeah. And I had this wonderful woman when I went to uh, high school whose name was Ruth Strand, and she was very supportive of me. And so all along the way, but that's such an interesting question. Did I have confidence? I think I knew somewhere that there was a talent there. I didn't worry about the talent. I worried about whether I could actually manifest it. And I'm one of those people that needs to study long and hard when I do any piece of work so that I can get myself grounded and feel myself confident. I watch other people can just sort of like waltz into something and do it easily. I have to really be diligent. Your first heroic move as an actor was to say yes to a soap opera oh. at a time where we were like soap operas how beneath us but even then with that <laughs> traditional soap opera writing you brought me to tears you know it's a very interesting thing because you were just talking about how we all tend to really put soap operas down in many ways and i was one of those people and what came about was that I needed to change my life. I needed and wanted to be a different person than the person I was being. The person who was saying, I'm never going to do a soap opera. Right. I'm never going to do a sitcom. I didn't want to be that person anymore. So you had a different idea of the kind of actress you were going to be. I was going to be in theater and feature films, right. and that was going to be the end on that. Was there someone that you admired and saw that career and went, oh, I want to do... No, I had a kind of narrow scope of my life and who I was as a performer, as an artist in that life, because I wanted so desperately to get the approval and be in that sort of, quote, that class. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be in that group. And I was getting more and more miserable. Mm -hmm. And at one point, I said, I've got to get out of this business. I can't do this. And I kept looking at what I was getting and doing. And I was going from theater to theater, doing this play or that play. And I thought, of what service is my talent of what service is my life so maybe I should go and do something else and quite by divine choreography I had just gone to a therapist my first time in therapy many many years ago 
at this particular juncture. And my agent called me and she said, they want to see you for an understudy for one day on a soap opera. And I said, I told you I'm not doing a soap opera. And yeah. she said, you have no money. It's $350 for the day. I said, I'll take it. I'll, I'll go in. So I went in. I didn't un- even know they had understudies on his They soap. didn't. It like got lower and lower. It wasn't just come in for the day. It was come in and sit by and watch in and case. see if this person is going to. Okay. Throw up. Whatever. Be, whatever. Okay. And what happened was I watched the diligence of the work. I watched these incredible actors right. who I, mean, I knew had come from theater the theater. Actors. I watched how hard they were working and what they were doing. And I, all of a sudden, it opened up my eyes in a way. And I said, I have been disrespectful. Mm-hmm. And I said, wait a minute. If I were lucky enough to get on a show and be able to work this way and bring my theater training to this work... I would be graced. And the producer talked to me about, you know, coming in and maybe auditioning for the part. They were thinking of replacing this this young woman. And I went in and I auditioned. And he said, if you were to play this part, what would you do with it? So I started wow. talking to him about what I thought about it. So I went in to audition and they gave it to me. And I thought to myself, you can actually reach a lot of people. Yeah. And it was beginning to answer the question of what could my service actually be with my talent and my art. And I said to myself, it doesn't matter where you give it. What matters is that you are not being disparaging of other people. You have to become a different person. And I remembered my father wanting me to be that kind of person. And I thought I have been so selfish and so self-involved that all I wanted was something the way I wanted it, Mm. that I had to have it. And I was being an incredible spoiled brat. Well, when you played Karen Wolick, who became the character that you won two Emmys for, she was a woman who was a doctor's wife by day and had a really dark secret that involved prostitution. And then you end up, because of a murder in Landview, because I watched this just last night, and it's as remarkable today as it was when you did it in 1977. Thank God for YouTube. How did you manage to make a trial on a soap opera as riveting as, frankly, as riveting as you were in wit? In that role. That trial sequence is two things. One, it is a year and a half of the body of work that led up to that moment. And I think why people respond to it is because I've always said it is the ultimate coming out story. It is the coming out story that tells you what you need to do in order to be free of your secrets. And everybody has one. That's right. I imagine there must have been a very instantaneous response from the fans to what they there had was. seen. And that might have been your first time of really being exposed to the power 
of it was it portraying w- someone like that. Yeah, it was really almost overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I was shocked at the response. I am still shocked at the response even today of people who still relate to that and still connect to me from that that many years ago. From that many years ago and that time. And I I remember this one, there were two incredible stories. One, when I was uh, playing the prostitute, still in the life, trying to get out of the life, I was at a grocery store late one night after we had shot. And this woman, young, beautiful woman came up to me and she said, you know, you're very convincing on that show. And I turned to her and I was gave a sort of snappy retort. I said, how would you know? Right. And she said, would you like to come and meet the girls? Wow. And I said, I would. And she took me to this house. And it was a, an, a very eye-opening experience for me. And subsequently, I would get letters from women who were in the business of prostitution and sex workers. And how some of them were desperate to get out of the life and would say, because you were able to do it on television, I now have a role model. Nobody talked about this before. So there was that. And then there was another story. Got a letter from this woman. And it was about this autistic boy. It was a, a place where autistic children were being taken care of. Okay. And he was severely autistic. And she wrote to me and she said... I think he was about seven years old, this young boy. And she said, he has never spoken a word. And we were walking through the playroom this one day, and the television was on with your trial sequence. And she said, I know he is going to be all right, because he turned to the television and looked at you doing that. And he said, cry. So that was his first time speaking. So you're done. Like you hear that and you're like, okay. I mean, yeah. anything after that is just icing on a cake. But that's what this is about. Right. Well, This it can is be. not about the next thing you're going to get in the next career move right. and the next thing you think you should be doing, which is all I ever thought about, right. which is why I was so miserable and unhappy. When I started reframing everything, recontextualizing everything, it all started falling into place in a way that it's supposed to work. This is not magical. This is not, if I do this, I'll get that. That's not the way it works. Uh And I wish that I had known that then, but I had to go through this process. And that's why this process has been so valuable. How long was it between One Life to Live and Who's the Boss? I left One Life to Live. Where you met your beautiful husband. Where I met my beautiful, wonderful, amazing husband, who was the one who said, you have to leave now. I was terrified to leave. I was living in the city of my love, my heart, my New York City. Greatest city in the world. Yes. (laughs) Get you. Well, you know, Tommy Kale, if you're listening. Yeah. I'm sure there's a a production in Teaneck that I write for. (laughs) But wait, did you know you were hilarious? No. 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 I still don't think I'm hilarious. I believe they've given you some awards for how funny you are. (laughs) That's okay. I'm earnest. (laughs) Let's say that. But what happened was I left in the beginning. Robert said to me, I've been working in California. I think you'll work there. People need to know what else you can do. And I said, okay, all right. And my beloved managers of 
36 years, yes. Herb Hampshire and Jonathan Stoller. But both. who were newer at the time. <laughs> yes. and, <laughs> and not yet 36 years. Yeah, right, yes. exactly. And they backed him up. So I was ready to kill everybody. I was they like, ganged up on you. They ga- and I remember sitting in the office signing those papers that said I was going to leave. And I was like, oh, my God. And wow. I went to California with nothing. Well, you went with two Emmys. Yes. By the way. By the way. I want to just add that. But remember that when you are a person who wants to work and is worried what this new world will bring sure, you. Sure, You're it's scary. totally not. You're scary, scary. And you're not certain. And so. And you were from Trenton. This was all new. And I didn't drive. Yes. And I didn't want to drive. That's and really I wanted hard. To, I, and I wanted a change of season. And totally. I know people in California say, the season's changed. And I say, what, from one sunshine to another? I say, I, you know, it's like, yes. please, I need snow. Yes. I need boots. Yes. I need fall outfits. I need, I mean, it's just, so. And you're a fall. I mean, you look good in fall colors. So <laughs> Thank you, darling. <laughs> As do you. Thank you. You're welcome. So you somehow, they get you out there. They get me out there. And so I start auditioning for all these things. Were you a good auditioner? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Here's the audition story. Okay. So I'm not getting anything. How come, Judith? That's what I said to Herb. I said to him. Herb the manager. Herb the manager. Who has the wisdom of... Socrates and Aristotle and all of them put together and every sage that ever lived. And I said, why is this happening? I don't understand this. Shaking him by the neck. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> he said, put me down. <laughs> he said, put me down. Oh, you why. He said, you're so angry <laughs> and you're so spoiled. Oh, my God. You want what you want. Well, and he said, and they feel that underneath when you walk in the room. They don't want to be around you. The agents, the agents called and said that I had gotten this pilot. And then they called back and said, we apologize. We called the wrong person. Oh I was like, this is really oh not God. happening. That hurts my feelings. I was just, it. I was just awful. <laughs> and, but I, I listened. Mm-hmm. I knew what he was saying was right and true. And those are the kinds of people you want to have around you, people who will tell you the truth about you. And the next thing I went in for was a thing called You're the Boss. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you weren't... Yeah. <laughs> Not Who's the Boss. I'm sorry. It was I thought called... you were on Who's the Boss. It was it called was You're called the Boss You're the, the Boss. Is that funny? Yeah. I wonder if that was the title, if it would have been as successful. I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, everything has to be right, right? Like all of it. You're absolutely right. Who changed it to who's the boss? Who came up with that? I think our writers, Marty Cohen and Blake Hunter, I think they changed it. And I I think they wanted that question in the title because from week to week it changed. That's the whole thing. The kids sometimes. Exactly. I went in for it and I loved the script. And I let them know how much I loved it. And I wasn't on my high horse. And I love Tony Danza's work in Taxi. And I thought he was really kind of magical. Did you get to read with him? I had an audition with him. Okay. And my audition with him is, I think it's out on YouTube. And I went in. And I fell in love with Tony. I fell in love with Bill Persky. I fell in love with the whole team. And when Tony and I did the audition, what happened was he knocks on my door in the evening, and he's just found me with my boss, sort of wrestling with him on the kitchen floor. 
and he comes in. He th- we're sort of in the throes of you know getting involved love, with each early other. Early love throws. Early love throws, and he comes in and breaks it up because he thinks he's accosting me. Yes, and then he comes to apologize to me. And I'm in my nightgown and my robe, and he knocks on my door in the in the night afterwards to apologize to me. And I say to him, well, we're not going to talk here in my bedroom. So I walk in front of him out to this little bench that's in the hallway. And I knew he was going to check me out. Uh-huh. And it's not in the script. And I just turned to him and I said, what are you looking at? And that's when Tony said, that's when I knew she was my girl. You know, usually when you do a show for eight years, by the time it's coming to its close, everybody's like, okay, goodbye. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love you. It was yeah. great. So long. We just had a reunion about a month ago. And the love and the connection that we all felt for each other is still as palpable today as it was then. And I really do believe that when you do a show on television, that the energy of those people comes through Mm. and actually is what grabs people. It's like you don't watch Transparent. You feel yeah. transparent. Yeah. Well, you feel like it's your family. Oh, you f- and you've exactly and yeah. you feel one life to live and you feel who's the boss. It's on a whole other energetic level. And it requires that we bring ourselves to that to that purpose, I think. You guys had crazy sexy chemistry yeah. on that show. Yeah. And it sounds like you were real friends. We are. If I needed anything, I would call him in a heartbeat i would hope that he would call me too wow i mean we were so lucky we are really deeply connected and he taught me how to be hysterical Hmm. he taught me to not be afraid of comedy and to throw myself into something in a way that i do now because i i learned at the feet of a master you know Comedy is music. You you hear it or you don't. And mm-hmm. I have the instinct for it. But he taught me how to technically orchestrate it. He taught me how to read the music. I could hear the music, but he taught me how to read it. And that's a that's an amazing gift. But remember, my dad's from the Bronx. My husband's uh-huh. from the Bronx. He's from Brooklyn. I know. These are your people. These are my people. Yeah. And the Italians, please, yeah. you know, yeah. right? They're my people They're now, my, apparently. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and so we we have that. And my grandmother's closest friends were all Italians mm. when I was growing up. I mean, they would be over at the house. They would make food. I right. mean, it was like... That was, warmth and that humor uh, and, and that the, passion And it's all the life. same. Yeah. They just have better food than we do. Yes. I mean, it's like They this. use sauce. They do gravy, babe. <laughs> but you know what's true about that? If I had stuck to my being stuck, Mm. none of that would have ever happened. I would never have the ability to use my voice in ways, other ways that also really matter to me. When Herb and I met, he said, what do you want? And I said, if I ever get any kind of notoriety, I want to find a way to use that platform to make the world a better place. And that's what's really important to me. And he said, that I can help you do. If I try to imagine the perfect storm for you of who you are in the world, spiritually and politically, and a show that embodies those ideals and messages, 
you could not make up transparent. You couldn't. You know, I think a lot about shows that resonate for me. Obviously, every single actor on that show is magnificently talented. The writing is stellar. Stellar. We talked about secrets earlier when we were talking about your part on One Life to Live. I think I heard you quoted as saying, the show is about, if I told you this about myself, would you still? It's so interesting that um, I could not, you know, how some people have said that the universe can do better by you than you can do for yourself. Okay. Or, you know, when you're making, you know, you want to, you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. My activism did come about, um, out of the AIDS pandemic, but it, but it, I was reminded of how the gay community had taken care of me when I was a very young girl in a performing arts camp in New Hope, Pennsylvania. And I didn't realize until later that those were the young men who were so loyal to you. Watching out for me, this 11, 12 year old Mm -hmm. girl at a performing arts camp. And I thought back to what they had done or how they had cared for me. And I watched as the pandemic decimated the community. And I saw Elizabeth Taylor standing up as a beacon with that resilient, energetic, powerful, passionate voice of hers to stand up for the community. And I said, this community is inspiring me and she is inspiring me. And whatever I can do to speak to this community that I am in awe of the way they are responding, I want to be a part of it. It's why I got involved with Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS, yeah. why I got involved with Point Foundation. It came out of this response to wanting to be a part of a community that operated in this majestic way, magnificent way. You want to find a leader? Look to the to the LGBTQ community. Look to them. And so that's how I got involved in that. And then as time went on, And like you said, the voice got louder because I realized the level of homophobia that was in the country and is still to this day. And I watched how all of us have something to come out about. And sometimes it's harder for straight people because sometimes we have to figure out what we have to come out about. And will you still love me if I? So here at this point in my life, I have transparent I don't have an audition. I have a Skype call with Jill Soloway on the telephone for 45 minutes where we talk about our advocacy mm-hmm. and how how it matters to us to want to change the conversation, change the world, make it different. I worship at her feet. Mm-hmm. There is no one like her. And she is doing this. And Gabby and Jay and Amy and Jeffrey are all a part of that movement toward it. Our executives at Amazon are all part of this. And it's led in this way by her vision Mm. and her seeing, I couldn't have created this in a million years. I truly believe there is somewhere where this is divinely choreographed. Right. You know, I know there are young people that are listening. I know that 
it's important to them. And I, I would say, open up your channel. Don't think about this as your career. Make your life the context of your work. Let it be that who you are as a human being is what shines through. Let it be that you work hard, that you are kind to other people, that you live in gratitude for what you are given and take it and make it as majestic as you can possibly do. And all of a sudden, your life will be wonderful. And it won't matter whether you are a star on the next thing or whether you get a feature film or whether you get a starring role in a Broadway show or you win the Tony or the Emmy or the the Oscar. None of that will matter because the satisfaction you get from being the kind of human being you want to be will be your gift multifold. You know, I heard a TED Talk once and the, the centerpiece of the conversation was people who give back mm. are the happiest people. And there was an article in the New York Times several years ago about that too. Well, I'm sitting across living proof and I am so gloriously happy to have had Judith Light on Little Known Facts today, and I cannot thank you enough. And on behalf of the entire world, <laughs> I want to say thank you for your advocacy and your talent and your passion and your kindness, most of all. So thank you for being here today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. And I'm so glad that that movie that you produced, yes. Ira and Abby, that we got to do together, yes, in which brought us together. Yes, hilarious and wonderful. And, <laughs> and, and people should give it a look. Give it a look-see if you haven't seen it the first time. All right. Well, until next time, Ms. Light. I love you. I love you, too. Judith is devoted to the charity The Point Foundation. To find out more information about the Point Foundation, find them online at www.pointfoundation.org. Clouds can make the wind blow, bugs can make the grass grow, so there you go. These are little known facts that now you know. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says Contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast. And on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media. Located in Times Square, Pro Media offers both production and post production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. Pro Media Sound Vision. Find out more at promedia.nyc.